Hello and welcome to Desi American Life. I'm Uma. I'm Priya. And I'm Deepti. So today we wanted to talk a little bit and start a conversation about immigration in the United States. And this was sparked by some recent news that happened in June. Trump suspended H-1B and other visas that allow foreigners to work in the U.S. And recently, a lawsuit was actually filed by Indian nationals saying the restriction on the new H-1B and H-4 visas is unlawful. And this is the first lawsuit to challenge this proclamation. So we thought this would be a timely topic and wanted to start a conversation. So Deepthi Uma, do you have any thoughts on this and why we wanted to talk about this today? I thought this was really unfair because there are people who work their whole lives to come to the United States and pursue what is so-called the American dream. For example, we are the children of immigrants and we've benefited from our own parents taking advantage of the system. And it's kind of unfortunate that people don't have the same privileges and the same opportunities to really expand and pursue their own goals. Yeah, I kind of agree with that sentiment too. I think just from what I've been seeing in the news so far, it doesn't really seem right. And then throughout this episode, we interviewed a few people who have H-1B statuses or like coming from different immigration backgrounds. And we asked them about their experiences regarding this. So we wanted to do this episode because like I said earlier, we are the children of immigrants. And we wanted to share our own immigration experiences or our parents' immigration experiences specifically. (laughs) So I guess I'll start out. I grew up in the U.S., but I was born in India. My parents immigrated here in 93 when I was about one and a half years old. My dad was a software engineer at the time at Marathone in Bangalore, and he was given the opportunity to come to the U.S. on an H-1B. He really didn't have any plans to immigrate at the time. In fact, (laughs) to this day, my parents sort of joke that their plan was to save up $50,000 and move back to India because that was a lot of money for them, and they thought that was enough to make it in India. But like since Averifone sort of facilitated the process to sponsoring my dad's H-1B and then he was sort of fast-tracked to get his green card, they basically ended up staying. And this was in 1993 and we got our green cards two years later and became naturalized citizens relatively easy. And I know I was given a lot of opportunities and was able to do a lot of things with my education and career that I know a lot of people aren't afforded the opportunity to do because they still don't have their green cards or are in a certain visa status. So I think it's important to have this conversation. Uma, how did your parents immigrate? Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, it's a big story because now I have like a lot of family members living in the U.S. and I think we all identify as uh, Indian American now. But basically, my late paternal grandfather was basically the catalyst and instigator for motivating his children to come to the U.S. So first, I think my dad's older brother 
was the first one to get a job in America and start working there. And, you know, he would come back to India and visit family and stuff. It's very interesting. I remember he would bring like chocolates and stuff from America. And I guess we were very, you know, fascinated with this like idea of like American chocolates, American clothes. <laughs> I was also very young, so I don't think I understood anything because I came to America when I was five. So I have very faint memories of India. So my dad actually, interestingly, studied civil engineering and he did his master's in transportation engineering and he actually had like a good government job and I think at that time like working for the government having like a stable job was like a very you know like a great goal to have in life so he was working in Mumbai but then I don't know suddenly he made like a 180 degree switch to try and come to America I'm not really sure what the exact reasons behind it was maybe because like America presented itself with more opportunities than what he had, even though the opportunities he had in India were pretty good. And yeah, so I think it's very interesting because he did not start as a software engineer. So he basically took like computer lessons and like tests to qualify for an IT job. And that's what that's allowed interesting. him. So went to America. And Keithy, just like your parents, they literally just initially had ideas to save up money and go back. Because they were like, wow, dollar to rupee conversion. Wow, we can be rich. Like, save as much as we can and go back. Yeah, I don't know. I think they quickly got assimilated to life without even knowing it. They just decided to stay too. We were very young. We kind of assimilated to growing up here. I remember going to like preschool and kindergarten. But our immigration story, I don't think was as straightforward or easy. I have basically a lot of setbacks. and. Since I was basically older than my other two siblings, I kind of witnessed some of this or understood some of it at that time. It basically took us 13 years to get our green card processed. So it was like a very long, bumpy road. And in the middle of that, we actually relocated and lived in England. So maybe that also contributed to the complexity. But I actually remember taking a test to become a citizen because I was actually over 18 by the time we got to that stage as a family. So that was very interesting. I had to take that, but my siblings didn't have to take it. Yeah, basically, like, a lot of the times I actually felt so out of place and that I didn't belong here. I think because I moved a lot as a kid, I didn't really know what, what my identity was. But the nice thing is that, like, I saw other people with similar stories like this, similar immigration stories and moving to the Bay Area, which was so diverse helped me like grow and kind of like be okay and evolve into my Indian American identity today. But yeah, basically the American dream was something my parents always wanted to pursue. And sometimes I didn't, I don't understand it, but here we are. So Priya, I'm actually very curious to hear more about your story because I know your family came to America way before. So yeah, so my story was that my mom's father came here first. So he came in the 60s. He moved to the East Coast, and his brother was actually here as well. So he had come in 1964, which was just before 65, the Immigration Act that had happened. And then both of them were here for five years, and they didn't go back to India because they were using that time to get their citizenship. And then once my grandfather became a citizen, he was able to sponsor all of his kids to come here. So they basically came in the next few years. And my mom was the first one to come here out of her siblings. And then she got married and then brought my dad here as well. And they were actually able to get green cards like right away. Like that's how they 
came to the United States. So because it was earlier, there were fewer immigrants at that time from India. It was just like a super straightforward process. And so, you know, very lucky for them. They didn't have to wait in any lines or like, you know, wait at all really. And yeah, like pretty much similar to you guys, you know, they had the American dream as well. Like my parents, you know, when they decided to get married, they already knew like they're definitely going to come to America, bring their entire families here. Like my dad also brought all of his siblings and their kids, like eventually help sponsor everybody. And so, yeah, that's why I have a lot of family like in the East Coast now. They all pretty much just settled there. And yeah, it was interesting. Like once my parents came here, I think, you know, somewhat unrelated, but the way that they came to California was I think my dad had a friend who was in California and he's like, why are you in the East Coast? Like the weather is so bad there. You should come to California. It's amazing here. Like there's palm trees and (laughs) weather is so nice. And so then my parents came to California in the 70s and just like never left after that. So yeah, I was born in California and then I've been here ever since. And yeah, it's like crazy. I think at that time is just so much easier. And now the process is so difficult, you know, for anybody to come here. And I can, you know, try to empathize because it's so different. Like, we're lucky that we all came at the time that we did, because now it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even though my family had some struggles with the green card, you know, I can only imagine in present day, it might be much more difficult. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is, like, I don't even think about this stuff anymore, you know? Like, I used to, like, my family used to, and I was only 10. But, yeah, I'm just very curious to see what the state of the world and affairs are right now. Like, so, you know, we're going to have some conversations with people who are going through this present day. So, that'll be interesting. Our first guest would like to stay anonymous, but actually reached out to us because he was initially an international student, but is now an H-1B holder at a tech company. He goes pretty in-depth about the H-1B application process and the process to getting an H-1B, and also speaks a little bit about his experience as an international student in the United States. I moved here when I was 21 on an F1 visa. I went through three years of master's and then like about five years ago got my H1B and then I started my first job and I've been on H1B for roughly four years now. It was interesting because you said you came as an international student. So did you have any reactions to the recent decision made by ICE? Yeah, I I mean, just like you mentioning it, I I get goosebumps. I'm like... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, because it, it is so wrong and so many levels it's like almost triggering i was pretty enraged that like hey you would risk students lives like in middle of a pandemic to say hey either you choose getting infected by covid by going to classes physically or you get on a plane just getting infected on a plane and take it back to your own home country so it's rude <laughs> right I'm really glad that, you know, people came together and to actually make them reconsider the decision. But I think it was more motivated by financial repercussions from people like Harvard and MIT suing the government rather than some humanitarian ones. It's not like they realized their mistake and they took it back. So I want to know more about your student experience. What made you decide to come study over here? I'm just 
curious, like what is like the process? Do you pay like the same type of fees or is it generally considered more expensive than studying in India versus studying in the US? Definitely. I think, again, my experiences with this is like at least six years old because I came here about like six or seven years ago. So obviously my experiences are a little bit behind what it is today, but like it's mm-hmm. mostly still stands. And having said that, so it is definitely really expensive, many fold expensive to think about an education in the US than in mm-hmm. India because I spent pretty much $10,000 for my four years of college in India. Mm-hmm. And with my first two semesters in the US, I paid $14,000 each semester. Wow. So, Which school did you go to? Is it like a state school? Or? Uh, it was a state school. Mm-hmm. And so basically international students do give them like plenty of money. So we are charged out of state and we oh, do okay, bring yeah. in a lot of revenue to the universities where we get in the education and then like once you get good enough to have like some sort of research assistantship then you contribute other ways that like hey like you're doing research for them right while living in poverty (laughs) pretty much like the grad students uh, have abysmal pay and that's a whole other tangent that we could take yeah it's definitely it's it's hard for sure i mean yeah i could only imagine for international students you're out of state out of state tuition is much more than people who are living in state and decide to go so absolutely so basically most people tend to take out big loans because like hey you've only spent small portion of what you're paying for your master's for your mm-hmm. full of bachelors in mm-hmm. my case yeah and people who are coming here for bachelors are definitely paying a whole lot more as compared mm-hmm. to in india so it is a massive undertaking especially you take that risk because you believe that you will be allowed to work here and make back that money in dollars given like better opportunities like that's yeah, probably the idea exactly. that they're giving to you okay yeah yeah so, so you basically american dream exactly so yes. you, and you get to be for somebody who's technology enthusiast like me like the opportunity that uh, working in american company gives is to be able to work on the cutting edge of whatever tech i'm interested in as a tech worker so there is a legitimate claim that like hey you're getting something that you wouldn't get back in Mm -hmm. your home country in some ways but at the same time you're only taking that risk because you're given the guarantee that like hey we will it's okay if you want to work here but what was sort of the process to getting your h1b were there any challenges to that so there are challenges so basically the transition from being a student to an h1b is pretty tricky in that so once you graduate you have 90 days to find a job or you're out so that's even before your h1b so you better have your ducks in a row and like you grab a job in the first 90 days or you go mm. back once you do that then you have including 90 days you have uh, 12 months to work called optional practical training they call it the opt so and then you have provided that like your employer says that you're doing well you can extend it for 24 more months so that gives you 36 months from the time you graduate to get an h1b <laughs> that's not that long but it's not like you can apply for it anytime you can only apply for it once a year so you have three tries to get the h1b Mm -hmm. and so it's basically a lottery they get like 240,000 250,000 applications a year but only 80,000 h1bs are allowed a year but they have like 250,000 applications so you kind of hope that your application gets picked in the lottery for Mm -hmm. further processing 
And what does uh, further processing mean? So basically, so this is just that like, oh, you, you want to come here, you have the basic qualifications to apply. Now mm-hmm. you, you, you got picked in the lottery and now we are going to decide whether you're good enough to be given the visa or not. I have had few friends who got picked in the lottery but got rejected in the processing piece of it. And mm. that kind of rejection was like before 2015, it was like around like, you know, single digit percentages, but now it's like much more. This is interesting. So you speak about this process, like what does that entail? Like, do they have to go in for an interview? Like, What so are the this criteria? Is still, this is still not, not an interview yet. There are three phases to it. First okay. phase is you apply and th- you get picked in the lottery. Mm-hmm. So the second phase is here you got picked. So like, let us process your application and see if you're really good enough. So in my case, they came back and uh, I, at the time I worked for a pretty big company. You'd say a device made from that company is in uh, most mm-hmm. people's homes. It's like very well-known brand. So mm-hmm. in my case, they asked me, hey, prove this company is a real company. Oh. <laughs> so my company had to provide like 30,000 page dossier saying like, hey, we're a real company. And in somebody else's cases, they say, hey, are you really qualified to be, do this job? To got prove it. to us that like, you got, you're qualified to do this job. In somebody else's case, like, hey, do you really need an immigrant to do, to do this job? Like, can you not find somebody local for this job? Prove that you couldn't okay. find somebody local. So they go through all these processes and then you get awarded the visa. So, if so that's the second stage, right? Second stage. The last stage is to actually go to the consulate for mm-hmm. your actual visa interview and to get mm-hmm. the, what they call stamping. Oh, yeah, funny story. I remember doing that as a kid. Yeah, so basically that's the last step. And even then they could reject you at that point mm-hmm. if they find something strange. I remember having to do this as a kid because my family moved a lot too and it took us a really long time to get our green card and finally our citizenship. Mm-hmm. So I think we were in Chennai actually. And yeah, we went to the, oh, really? For your stamping? Yeah. Yeah. So we went to the place, we waited for like two hours and I was in middle school. I think it was like an American lady who was mm-hmm. asking those questions. And I thought that yeah. was so strange to see an American lady in India. I was a kid, so what do I know? <laughs> and then she just looked at me. She was like, are you guys missing school? And I was like, yeah, I'm missing school. I don't know what I'm doing here. And then she just <laughs> took a look at us. And I guess, you know, that was a saving grace when she gave us a stamp. Yeah, yeah that, that process is pretty nerve-wracking because you'll be in the line for mm-hmm. the interview and you'll see people get rejected left, right, and center, right? Like, it would seem like they're giving really normal answers, but they're like, sorry, we can't give you the visa now. So, wow, <laughs> that's, that's scary. Yeah, you have to do that process every time your H-1B gets renewed as well. The first time and also each time you get renewed, mm-hmm. you need to go through this process. And now it's a two-day process where... Day one, you go give your fingerprints and put, take your photograph taken and all the biometrics. And then day two, you go back for the interview. So it's not even one day anymore. Interesting. Do you think the change in administration, because you said earlier that before the rejection rate was like in single digit and now it's higher, was it like a change in administration, do you think? I 
think so. And it's definitely a part of it because mm-hmm. like the trend is pretty evident. And I think there were some statements made by some of the officials which kind of confirm that is the case that they're more stringent now than before. So they're kind of like the process is a lot more stringent in like which of the applications can be mm-hmm. rejected. I was filling out the application to get my H-1B renewal done. So I got my mm-hmm. H-1B renewal done. Renewal is like filed to the company. It, gets, it goes through a long process and it's like, you know, okay, renewed, but I still need to go get stamping. This is one of the things like you'll be living in the U.S. working and Mm -hmm. your H-1B gets renewed. Now, Mm -hmm. if you leave the country, if if you have like a renewed visa, you can't come back in without the stamping. So that means you got to go back to your home country, go through the stamping process and then come back. Mm. You have to take paid time off. Exactly. It does legit eat into your vacation time. You're trying mm-hmm. to be there with your family, like, but no, no you, you got to take two days off to mm-hmm. go through this process. And this time when I was filling out the application for the appointment, I saw that like, uh, you got to provide your social media accounts to them. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So I was like, that puts a lot of pressure in what people in H1B or even any immigrants who are applying for visas, what they can or cannot post on social media. Mm-hmm. That's, that's almost tough. an invasion of privacy. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. Because you see a lot of people who have the privilege, like as in citizenship, posting mm-hmm. whatever they want. It could mm-hmm. be against the government. It could be like radically for the government. And yeah. they basically have no repercussions, but it seems like. Yeah, I, I mean, I can, I can see why they don't want people who post things against the government. I can see why they want to vet. But at the same time, it puts so much pressure like because you don't know what they will consider as against the Yeah. Government. Yeah, it could be something like very innocent that like you yeah. had no intention of like saying anything. Yeah. And they yeah. could be like, that's not right. <laughs> exactly. And if it's like an individual, it's okay. But what if that person has a family who has kids who are studying in the U.S. and like, you know, and for whatever innocent thing that goes like that gets misinterpreted that's like that's a that's a huge pressure to be perfect all the time yeah that's tough I feel like you have to walk around eggshells and just be very careful and I I don't know I don't think anyone should feel like that in whatever country that they're staying at and working contributing to Mm -hmm. yeah because you're paying taxes you're contributing to the economy yeah we we, we pay taxes all right (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious like if you're you're in Canada or I'm not sure like if you're in England or you know one time I went to a job fair and then people from New Zealand were like please come to our country like work here you know like do an internship and I'm just wondering like if a South Asian person was living in Finland or New Zealand are they facing the same problems and same higher rates of rejection as U.S.? I am not sure about the higher rates of rejection but I I see them not having to worry about whether their visa would be renewed or not every three years. Mm-hmm. Um, Got so it. especially in Canada, Canada is actively saying like, hey, we'll give you permanent residency, come work. We'll give you three years to find a job. So if you find a job, we'll give you like put you on a path to citizenship. So you don't have to worry about no 90 day rule that like, hey, I need to find a job. If they're looking at like, hey, you're a qualified individual with this degree and this master's or this PhD. And then, hey, why don't you come over and take your time to find your job. I think three years is like pretty generous with when the person doesn't have, have a yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. So 
in uh, for the U.S., if you don't have a sponsor for H-1B, you can't even apply. You need a company to sponsor you. Got it. Uh, saying like, hey, we need this person in the U.S. So it's much easier to, if you want to try an immigrant life in Canada, at least like from the process perspective. I think they still have a lot of stringent process before somebody gets there. They do get vetted. They have multiple interviews, they have exams to take. But once you get there, it's not like you're counting your days. Yeah, once so. you get there, you're not stressed yeah. out constantly. Um, yeah, because 90 days looking at it is not very long. That usually stays true even if you get laid off on an H-1B. It's the same issue. If you get laid off, you have 90 days to find a new job or 60. I'm not sure. I think it is 60 days that you need to find a new job or you got to go back. So mm-hmm. considering the economy right now, you really hope that you don't get laid off on an H-1B. Yeah. And the other cool thing about being an H-1B, you get to contribute for social uh, security and Medicare. But if you lose your job, you're not entitled to that money. That's weird. Yeah. That's not fair. That's <laughs> Be- oh Because like God. you have bigger problems. Like, you know, like you, you have 60 days or you're out of the country. So like they can't yeah. possibly pay you. <laughs> Did you have friends and stuff who went through this process and who had to go back? Yeah, I have a really close friend who has a PhD going back next month because he couldn't get an H-1B visa in three tries. He finished his PhD, he's been working, it's been three years, and he didn't get his H-1B through the lottery, so Mm -hmm. he's going back to India now. Scary. Yeah, and he's like leaving some of his family back here too. His his wife is going to be here, so now they've got to figure out so much pressure on... Oh, really? People and families. Oh, that's interesting. What is the sentiment now with people who are on these H-1B visas, just in general? Like, how are they feeling? What's the general sentiment of people living in America, having this visa, going through all of this, the political climate? Yeah, it's scary because, like, especially the H-1B bans, H-1Bs can't come back until the end of the year that that was a pretty scary uh, prospect i mean especially now i next time i go i need to go get my stamping so between now and december one i can't go for whatever family emergency if i do have to go then there is no avenue to come back so will i still have a job if i can't come back it's a lot of anxiety and a lot of people do go through what i'm going through do you hear any misconceptions from any American friends you have about your visa status? Oh, yeah. One of the surprising ones that I got was, so let's say my American friends are planning a trip to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I can't go to Mexico and come back if I'm in that period where I got my visa renewed. So I have a valid visa. It's just not on my passport yet. They don't get that part. They look at me like, so you do have a valid visa, but they wouldn't let you back into the country? Are you sure you're illegal? (laughs) Oh my God. And that's kind of like mean too, like a little bit, but. Yeah. So I have have had people ask me that like, is it really legal that you're working here? (laughs) Because what you say doesn't make sense. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make sense, but like ask your government. (laughs) I guess a lot of people are not aware about the yeah. complexities and intricacies of all these things. I know like John Oliver on HBO, mm-hmm. he talks a lot about uh, his immigrant experiences, like dealing with like United States immigration. Having, having to go back to your home country for every year for the stamping is the worst thing possible. It puts yeah. so much restriction and like you got to be on top of your planning. You, you sure as hell hope that you didn't have to use your vacation for any emergencies. So. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, the misconceptions are, are definitely out there uh, about the whole process. You know, there's also another like misconception, and I, I'm just curious what you think about it. It's a little controversial, but you know, some people may say that, hey, look, H1Bs, they're taking away like jobs. They're taking away our jobs from citizens. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you say to that? Oh man, I think the whole reason H1Bs exist is that America is not producing enough mm-hmm. people in STEM. Yeah. So I think the answer to that is like, hey, do your due diligence with respect to whether you really need an immigrant for a particular job or not, which they mm-hmm. already do. So yeah. just trust your government that already does it. Got it. For people who tell me that like, hey, you're taking away American jobs, really not. <laughs> more power to you guys if you want to invest in STEM and encourage more people to take down this path. I mean, it's been a couple decades still the same thing yeah. <laughs> right. I don't know when it's gonna change but yeah mm-hmm. I can see certain industries where you have real niches and not enough Americans want to study more in these not so hot topics you still right. need these engineers in something in, which is not machine learning and artificial intelligence which is the buzzword which everybody are after today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so are you yeah. even getting enough students for all these other disciplines so they, they're like in, in my class six years ago in master's there was one american student oh wow then you gotta go think about why aren't more americans in master's programs like is it because Mm -hmm. they're too bogged down by debt but you know or (laughs) they're not interested yeah like figure it out (laughs) do you have anything you want our audience to like know or do like in particular uh, I just want them to know that like, hey, legal immigration has only gotten harder and not easier. Things could be a lot better. A green card takes like 13 years to apply right now. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, hey, be kind to somebody on H1B. <laughs> just at the very least, don't be okay. rude because like we're dealing with a lot of things and in terms of like more call to action, like, hey, if there are any proposals out there to make things better there was like one petition going around that hey like increase the number of days that you give an h1b person to Mm -hmm. find a job if they lose the job during covid so that's one example of a cause that you can throw your weight on there's so many proposals out there to make this process better both for americans and for immigrants Mm -hmm. so just because everybody wants the process to be smooth that's it like you know Mm -hmm. Americans want that guarantee that like, hey, nobody is taking away their jobs and, you know, immigrants want opportunities and peace of mind once they get here. Right. So that's a great way to put it. Because you did come here for that hypothetical American dream. Yeah. Instability in policy would only lead to confusion and fear. Who, exactly. And who, wants to, and who wants to live in fear? That's great. I mean, I really feel like through this process, interviewing people, I learned a lot personally, too. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully it'll bring more awareness and that awareness will lead to more action items in the future. Next, we talked to Simona, who recently shared her story of aging out of the H-4 visa in a Humans of New York post. She talked to us about some initiatives that she's part of to support others in her situation, as well as her take on why the government treats immigrants the way it does. Hi, everyone. So my name is Simona, and I graduated from UCLA last year, and 
Last year, I founded a Facebook support group called Ace for Hope. And most recently, about three weeks ago, I helped found another initiative called SOIS.US, which stands for Support Our International Students. And I grew up as a H4 dreamer. So that's also why I'm personally very passionate about the topic we're discussing today. Could you tell us a little bit about the Humans of New York story that you were featured in? I have been such a huge fan of Humans of New York for years. And towards the beginning of lockdowns, Brandon Stanton, the photographer of the blog, had posted that he was unable to continue interviewing people because of everything going on. So he dropped his email and he was like, hey, if you want to share your stories, I just want to you know, read them. I'm not sure how many interviews may happen, if this is even logistically possible, but like, I just want to read your story. And I was like, I would love for him to see my story. So I wrote about my experience growing up as an H4 dreamer. And I also talked about my dad, who's currently stuck abroad and his situation. And I sent that email and about a month later, I randomly got an email from Brendan and from there we did the interview and the post went up kind of discussing a different angle than what my email originally had. The post kind of discusses my struggles of applying to college as a very niche immigration status in the United States. So the interview process with Brandon is super cool in that we talked for over an hour. We covered everything that was in the email Mm -hmm. and a whole lot more than what was on the post but with like the character limits and stuff you kind of just have to pick one piece that you're going to be sharing for Mm -hmm. that post and it's also really hard to build up context surrounding such a complex issue Mm -hmm. in 2000 characters to explain what is a visa a gc backlog all of that is almost impossible to do i think the most relatable part for a lot of kids that week, especially because it was the week of the F1 ICE press release that went out. So mm-hmm. it made sense why that part of the story was highlighted. Yeah, definitely. It was like a very timely post with the current events that were going on at that time. Around that time, you were part of an initiative that was going on to help international students who could have potentially been you know, sent back to where they were from because there was that ICE ruling about students having to take classes in person. Yeah, so the day of the press release, a lot of people I knew from H for Hope and their parents were messaging me, kind of really worried about the ICE press release and asking for help on what are ways to comply with it so that their kids could continue their education. And I like thought about it for a little bit and I reflected on something we used to do at UCLA. Back when I was at school, if we urgently needed a class and it was an impacted class, there were different things you can do. You could email a professor for an enrollment number, you could trade spots with another student, or you could ask someone to hold spots for you. And even though university officials don't like to talk about all of this stuff, it was a very, very common and like well-known practice amongst kids because a lot of us are desperate, like you need certain classes that very quarter or else you could be set back for your graduation date by a whole year. So oh, that wow. whole idea yeah. of enrollment, holding classes, swapping them, I was like, why don't we just turn this into a G sheet and see if 
international students could find a local student and local students can find an international student. The DZ does me like 10 minutes to make and then I put it on my Facebook and my Instagram and I also posted it on a couple other like class of pages on Facebook and yeah, it blew up. Within an hour, one of the main people who helped me turned it into a website, Mary from San Jose Strong, reached out to me and then I woke up to 900 emails and there was a viral Instagram post and Twitter post that crashed our G sheet. <laughs> and yeah, on Tuesday night itself, we locked the G sheet. And then within 36 hours, we have turned it into a website. It's so cool yeah. that, you know, what you were part of putting together this Google sheet, and then it became a website, like all of us had seen, you know, this going around on social media, and we didn't know like who was actually mm-hmm. behind it. So it's mm-hmm. just really awesome to see how you know, everyone's coming together to try to help each other because that's all we can really do at this point, you know. So for our audience who might not know, who is an H4 Dreamer? Of course. So an H4 Dreamer or any sort of quote-unquote dependent visa Dreamer is usually a child that was brought to the States at a very young age and they are a dependent of a primary visa holder such as the H1B, an L1, could also be an F1. So what that usually entails for the child is they grow up usually unaware of their status because why would you discuss all this complex paperwork and all of that with a child? And then by the time they're older around high school, that's when a lot of us kind of figure out who we are and what being an H4 dreamer really means to us. And what it means is we don't get work permits. I personally have had to give up scholarships that I've won after the fact because I was an H4 dreamer. I really, really struggled to get a simple state ID until I was 21 years old because of being on H4. And you also can't do on-campus jobs. You have to fight for in-state tuition every quarter at some places. I fought for it every single quarter at UCLA. The list kind of goes on. And I think the biggest nail in the coffin for H4 Dreamers is you cannot derive immigration status from your parents after the age of 21. So what happens when you turn 21 is you quote unquote age out of the system. And in most cases, that kicks you off of your parents' green card application. And you have two options. Either you leave the country, so you self-deport, or you switch to an F1, a traditional student visa, and then you kind of restart the same journey your parents embarked on 20, 30 years ago. And it's back to square one, and you know, it's really not a sustainable way of life, and it kind of sets you up to ruin one to three potential generations of families in the state. Wow, yeah. It's such a large impact that the situation has, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. Like, at least I was not aware of it before we started to, you know, talk about this. So, like, Right now, you are F1. You're considered like an international student at this time, right? Correct. Yeah. Right now, I'm on the most common international student visa, which is an F1. There's also a J1, which is like a different type. But yeah, F1 is the most common type of international student visa. Have you heard any common misconceptions about the H4 visa status from your American peers? I think the biggest misconception and the most common question I I get is why don't you just apply for a green card you know like it's like a very like casual question that gets Mm -hmm. thrown out of a lot of us but people don't understand how complex it is to actually legally immigrate to the United States arguably one of the most complex immigration systems in the world 
and the number of steps, loopholes, and years you have to wait just so that you can file that final change of status to qualify for a green card. If you come from India, China, Mexico, or the Philippines, can take upwards of 15 to 20 years. And right now, the backlog for India, I believe, is 150 years. Yeah, so it's impossible. basically Which impossible. is ridiculous, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's like a very common misconception that, why haven't you done it yet? You know, like just file the paperwork, but it's like, I, I would love to, but I can't. Another common misconception is, I see this on Twitter a lot. Like when people talk about this, I'll see responses where people are just like, just go back home. Like you'll be happier there. Why are you trying so hard to live in America? And as a child growing up reading such things and now as an adult still reading those things, I would love to talk to those people and tell them like, this is where I grew up. Like this, this is where I saw my brother being born. This is where I learned how to talk, basically. This is where I learned how to roller skate. I made my best friends. I like had all these amazing experiences. That is home. To say, just go back home to India, like it's not that easy. And it trivializing another person's entire livelihood, essentially. Mm-hmm. So that's another really big misconception. Like, of course, I'm very grateful that I have another country, a whole different identity and cultural side of me. But at the end of the day, America. So another common misconception that people often bring up, and it's like very, very twisted in the media, is that immigrants are quote unquote stealing jobs. But the problem with that statement is a lot of times the actual verbiage and the structure of how to obtain a visa is not discussed and how to obtain employment in the United States is not discussed in the public eye. If someone wanted to apply for a green card and therefore began the process of obtaining an H-1B and employment, a company literally has to prove beyond reasonable doubt that that position was not able to be fulfilled by an American. They have to go out of their way and file paperwork and put out ads and hire and try to hire an American first before they try to hire a long-term H-1B applicant who's then going to switch over to a green card. So that's a very, very huge misconception. And I feel like it's so twisted in the media. And even the two most recent executive orders on immigration, the first one, it was marketed as a way to help preserve American jobs. And so was the most recent one that affected my dad. But unemployment right now isn't even occurring in the same types of jobs that a lot of these visa holders work for. Right now, coronavirus is not hitting the big tech industry. Mm-hmm. They can still successfully provide their products and services remotely. Yeah. Coronavirus is hitting restaurant owners, retail workers, mom and pop shop. Immigrants literally cannot work there. It is impossible. Even if you, like there, there's like a very minor way to get those jobs, but it's such a minuscule type of work permit. It, it's not as grandiose as some media outlets make it seem. So that's a very, very big misconception that really hurt the narrative of immigrants. Uh So if you have an H-1B or an L-1 or any of those like employment-based visas, Uh you cannot take a job that is not related to your major. And then 
to get sponsorship or a job that's related to your major, oftentimes these companies are very, very like niche in their research or roles. So like someone who studies electrical engineering, for example, he can only take an EE job in the state. Mm. Even if he gets an H-1B, it's not like he can just walk into a Kohl's and try to apply for a job there. It's it's illegal. He can't do it because it's not related to his field of study. Same with me. When I apply for jobs as an F1 student, my job must be related to my field of study, which is, which is bioengineering. So that's why a lot of immigrants can't do that. You were mentioning that your dad is stuck abroad right now and then I'm assuming your mother is here. So like, how has this like affected them? Yeah, it's pretty nerve-wracking because since my dad is stuck abroad, if he were to lose status while waiting abroad, then my mom loses status and she has to basically deport like ASAP and she would lose her job immediately too. And that means all of us lose our health insurance. Luckily, I could switch us to a different health insurance, but that means my citizen brother is left without his primary caregivers Mm. his senior year of high school while trying to apply for college. And it's like, he's a citizen too. Why are his parents valued any less or his needs valued any less simply because his parents, again, don't have the same pieces of paperwork as him. My brother is my closest, he's my favorite person in the entire world, and he's a citizen. So I don't want a whole other generation of our family to be separated because of the lack of a piece of paper. You know, like, that's so sad. I, I genuinely don't understand. I really wish politicians and people on the Hill would demystify why it's so hard to allow more immigrants because it it's not like America's overcrowded and it's not like a lot of these immigrants are going to need resources from this country because a lot of them on these visas have been paying taxes for years. They actually have been paying taxes to programs that they'll never even get to access or draw benefit from. So they've just been giving, giving, and giving, and they're just asking for a way to stay here and not have their kids deported. And I don't understand why there's not space for people who are willing to follow the law and people who are willing to positively contribute to American societies and communities and culture. I wish there were a way for us to actually talk to the people making these decisions and, you know, what is their logic? Because to me, it just, it feels racist, honestly. (laughs) And it feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, I can't think of like what that reason would be. Yeah, I, I personally believe a lot of the immigration, the reason it's split into different bills that appeal to different communities is because politicians are afraid that each community is going to vote a certain way. Mm-hmm. So one community getting immigration benefits is going to affect one party and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So if they split up all of them and pass none of the bills, then you're introducing no pathways to citizenship for no new voters. So you don't upset the very careful balance that they've learned how to perfect and build election campaigns around is kind of my theory and understanding. <laughs> But who knows? No, I mean, that makes sense, honestly. Like, I think dividing everybody is kind of like the entire Mm -hmm. game right now with politics. And everything becomes like a political issue. And honestly, it feels more like it should be an ethical issue at this point. But Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have anything you want the audience to act on? 
I think the most important thing right now is, so there's a lot of stuff going on right now in the Senate, especially with the bill that could help a lot of people. But that bill is super controversial, and I understand why it's controversial. It's called S386. I don't want to put out a call to action thing, like call your senators to, you know, like, least a hold on this bill because it's bigger than that. I truly believe the way the United States political system treats immigrants is to divide and conquer and like silence their voices. The reason there's S386 and like HR 1044 and the Dream and Promise Act and the Family Reunions Act, like it's all different piecemeal legislation to please different groups and then divide them so then they're pitted against one another trying to pass a bill for their own communities and thus nothing gets passed. I actually saw on the gov.track.us, I think that's the website URL, but since 1973, 9,073 bills have been proposed in the House and Senate, of which only four have passed by getting a vote through the House, the Senate, and then getting signed by the President. So if I were to give a call to action, it would be, please research who you're electing at a local level, at a state level, and then at a national level on their stances for immigration policy, because we don't have a voice. Essentially, we are tasked without representation, and I don't blame politicians for not listening to us because we can't hold them accountable in any way. The system is built in a way to very efficiently silence us. So my call to action would be to learn more about different immigrant statuses and please research who you're voting for on the ballot beforehand so that it makes it easier for our advocacy groups to get a chance to sit at policy table reads and eventually hopefully make some sort of difference. Wow, that's really surprising that only four have actually been passed and enacted. And 606 of the bills that have passed were directly signed by the president. So from my understanding of that verbiage, that means those were executive orders. I don't know how many of those were private bills. So a private bill can only apply to one person. And I bet a good number of those just helped like one immigrant in a very, very like specific situation. But yeah, it, to me, it was very clear that if you want to help immigrants in this country, it's going to be through a presidential EO. It's, it's not going to be through a bill because you can't convince hundreds of reps and a hundred senators to do something for people that don't vote for them. Mm. It's going to have to come through a president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you said the most important thing is to become more informed about what's going on locally and start there because that's going to help you know reach the top at some point. I think it's really interesting because I started working with another group it's a group of 40 amazing kids and they're working on launching infographics on what everything means in the immigration system So and trying to make all these guides go viral on Instagram so that people just read about it and learn about it. And uh, we're trying to create a simple voter guide on any sort of important bills that are coming up for discussion so that people are just aware. And I'm also trying to help launch a scholarship for kids specifically from a dependent visa background. So I think people are finally starting to talk about it. And in the past two weeks, I've seen the most amount of political rallies for H-1B backlog that I've seen my entire life combined. So oh, wow. I think the match has been lit. And it's only a matter of time before people really, really get fed up and they're going to demand some sort of change.
Yeah, definitely. No, it's, I'm like so inspired, honestly, by like the next generation. I mean, you're not that much younger than us, but I feel mm-hmm. like now everybody is just a lot more informed and a lot more, you know, motivated to actually make changes in our mm-hmm. generation. I don't know, people just didn't seem to be talking about this that much. So I'm just really yeah. happy to hear that there's so much going on for this movement. The ease of access for information through social media really, really like, changed the game. Within the last few months, honestly, like that was the biggest shift I personally saw. And our last guest is Samola. She's a grad student at the University of Washington. And in this interview, she mainly talks about her visa status and the emotional impact it has on her identity as an Indian American. Hi, I'm Samola Nayak. And I'm a 22-year-old student at the University of Washington. And I'm studying computational linguistics. I'm currently on an F1 visa, but I started out in the States on an H4 dependent visa. A lot of things were a headache under that H4 visa, and people don't really know that much about the backlog, except unless they watched that John Oliver episode. But I decided to appear here so that they get to hear about the emotional side of this and I affected how I grew up here and what I and what I could do and couldn't do. So do you think you can tell us a little bit about yourself, like when you came to the United States, your upbringing, and what led you to the visa status that you have today? Well, currently I'm on an F1 visa, but, it, but before that I was on an H4 for the longest time and I aged out of it. I first came to the States when I was like seven basically December 2005. And then I was on that until my 21st birthday, which was basically last year. Wow. So you came here when you were pretty young, like you went to school and high school and college here, I'm assuming. Basically, yeah. So you were mentioning like there were certain opportunities that you didn't have a chance to do, like when you were in college that your peers were able to do. What were some of those things? Yeah, one of those things was definitely internships because there's basically a ban on working for pay on an H-4 visa. And so if you mm-hmm. violate that, then you basically trash your green card application. Mm-hmm. And not just not just my green card application. My dad, uh, like he came in on an H-1B. And that's why my mom and I are on an H-4. So either my mom or I actually sought paid work, then we would basically risk trashing our green card application because of a status violation. So no internships for me. Have you had a job of any kind here or have you ever been able to apply? Well, I've been applying, but that lack of work experience definitely gets in the way. Yeah. And another thing I couldn't do was seek the plethora of scholarships and fellowships here. It was only during my junior year. I say junior year in quotes because I only spent a semester in, in the junior year. Yeah, I couldn't find very many scholarship opportunities that didn't have the fine print that said U.S. citizens and permanent residents only. My parents are still waiting on the green card. And, and I can't do that with my current visa, but so I basically have to start fresh if and when I get an H-1B and live here mm. for so many years. Could you maybe speak to the process of getting an H-1B when you have to go through that process? Yeah, at first I have to basically register for OPT on this F1 visa and, and then work at the company for a few years and, and hope they sponsor me. That's when I'll have an H1B sponsor. And then and after that H1B sponsor, I don't know. I don't know if the H1B, the green card thing is still in effect or if it got gutted by the Trump administration. But my dad, we do like have an application in files. So how long ago did you apply for your green card? Like how long has it been? I <laughs> It seems well, like keep, it's been a while. Yeah, I keep forgetting because it's it's kind of like the Schrodinger's case. 
like it's either it's like being processed or maybe it's not I, I don't even have access to the case number because I guess it's something sensitive if you don't mind me asking can I ask how all of this makes you feel especially the stuff related to international students and those incidents that have happened well um, like the whole thing with Trump mm-hmm. rescinding all the visas and all of that yeah. oh my gosh that made me feel disposable I'd say that the whole international student thing, plus the tier of requirements that, that the H-1B entails, that makes me feel disposable that I have to perform to an unrealistically high standard. And that my presence is just conditional, that I have to have the requisite brain to be here. Yeah. And then oftentimes I feel like I don't measure up to the arbitrary yardstick. Another thing that it impacted was I had to finish my undergraduate degree in two and a half years to race oh, against wow. my visa. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's very impressive. You finished it early. I mean, nobody can say that you're not smart enough yeah. <laughs> to be here. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's super yeah. unfair, the situation. It also impacted my grades. Uh, I can well imagine. Because my lightest credit hour load was like 15 hours, but that was my final semester. I took, like, I took upwards of like 17, 18 credits on average like during the first two years. There was even one semester where I, where I hit 20 credit hours. Yeah. You're really smart then. Uh, whenever people say I'm smart, I just have, I feel like I have to remind them that, you know, this is not even just me being sadistic or, or trying to demonstrate my smarts. I'm doing this out of necessity. Like when you have the motivation of if you don't finish, you won't be able to stay here, then, you know, what else can you really do? And that also made me not able to endure my graduation day in December. My parents tried to say that, Hey, it's a happy occasion. You gotta be happy about it. And then I wanted to tell them, you know, you don't even know how I feel like I'm prematurely pulled out of college by my visa. Because potential employers kind of see that if there's this box you have to check, which is I will be requiring sponsorship in the future. And then you get seen as a burden that yes, this person is a potential waste of legal fees if they aren't talented enough. Mm. Kind of like that. That's like really sucky situation to be in because if there's a barrier to entry for you just to get the employment that you're obviously working towards, and there isn't that barrier to entry for someone who just happened to be born here and has that privilege, but might not be as skilled as you, that's like totally unfair in my eyes. Yeah, it's Um, absolutely jarring because all my friends here were able to get their first jobs in retail. And then even that counts as like work experience that yes, this person has a frame of mind, to be a good employee. I mean, is there anything in particular that, you know, you want to share like with our audience or with, you know, people who might be listening to this episode, like besides what you've already talked about, like, what do you feel like, you know, people should take away from your story or maybe there are there any other kind of misconceptions you feel people don't know? A lot of the misconceptions that people have is that those in the H-1Bs are just basically stealing jobs from skilled Americans and it just ticks me off. It's not only that, but it makes the children of those visa holders feel like their presence is conditional. And the fact that there are like such different standards for not just working, but existing here is just absolutely messed up. The children of the visa holders also face, and and did I mention that identity crisis? No, you didn't. No, I didn't know more about that. That's interesting. Yeah, especially of late, I've been kind of questioning my own sense of like, why do I feel American? Is it a bad thing that I feel American? Is it wrong that I feel American? Because I came here at the age of seven and tension between me and my parents because they insist that I'm Indian and not American and they 
tell me to shut up about politics and current issues. And I say, hey, the FBI could be looking at your post. Take it down. And then I also ask myself the question, did I make myself too comfortable? Like, especially in 2016? Because I know that is what my gut says, but is my gut betraying India too? And this also comes up even now because I told my parents about about how I could potentially join the band at, at UW as a clarinet player to stay in the States. And then they said, I said, have some dignity, Samola. You have Indian citizenship. That was like absolutely the most tone deaf response from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty tough hearing that from your parents. I'm kind of curious. This makes me think, do your parents feel the same way about their visa situations and the uncertainty surrounding this as much as you do? Or are they okay going back to India if they needed to? Oh my gosh, they are definitely okay with going back to India if they needed to. And then I also feel that it's my fault for not being as fluent in Hindi as they are, or even as good at Uriya. Why, why would that be, be your fault? I could have pestered them to speak to me in either of those languages at home. Mm. They speak to me in Uriya like, from time to time, but when I was small, they tried speaking to me in English as, as much as they could. Oh, okay. More so, like, you wish you were connected to your culture in the sense that you could speak the language more fluently. Yeah, I speak the language more fluently, but also feel like hypothetically, I could go back to India with more ease. That is also the premise behind the Dream Act in Dhaka. You actually bring up a really good point, Simola. I can relate to some of these. I mean, I'm pretty old now. I've been here forever. But there was a point in time where my family had multiple doubts if we're able to stay here or not. And I remember being, you know, a seven-year-old kid, 10-year-old kid, middle schooler, being very apprehensive going back to India because I didn't really know what life would be there and just kind of like having to imagine a different life for yourself. That could, yeah, definitely affect you. And I think that's like what a lot of kids in the DACA program. That applies to undocumented immigrants. But I know it doesn't apply to people like you. If you're okay with speaking to your feelings about how it doesn't apply to you? Well, I have to say there's also the issue of privilege because my dad actually came here on a visa for basically skilled work. And we basically came here kind of voluntarily and we weren't like pushed out, but those are basically undocumented. They could be fleeing violence of some kind. And mm-hmm. Right. It's, yeah. And so I definitely see the humanitarian reason why it's, why it's more on the agenda. Yeah. If you have anything you'd like our audience to specifically do or advocate for, especially if they're maybe U.S. citizens, what should they do to support you? First of all, because it's been on the chopping block repeatedly, first of the H-1B, for one, I would like them to actually think about is free to green card processing times and actually accommodate the children who came here on H-4 visas. Like maybe create some kind of pathway for them to, like either in professional development because we missed out on a lot of that stuff. And not just professional development, but also make sure that employers kind of consider that as some kind of adverse circumstance that still affects us to this day. Thing I would like them to do is like empathize, empathize with the people on H four visas or who were on H four visas. Feel like they have a lack of political agency because I do feel like they're less likely to risk being called un-American for critiquing the immigration system. So, um, I think my parents are are of the opinion they're doing all this stuff to support those on DACA. Why are they Why are they doing nothing for us? And and I want to tell them that's because we haven't spoken up. Because if we speak up, we will get trampled. 
employers could probably jeopardize us. People will consider us anti-American like that. That's tough. That must put you guys in a very tough situation. Yeah, and it feels like I have to kind of prove my love for the U.S. all that harder and, and actually frame it in a way that, look, I expected a lot more from the States. Why is it not delivering? Like yeah. the American dream has failed you. And then also talk about not just the American dream failing me, but also try to make sure that I don't come off as self-seeking. Whenever people say stuff, oh, they're doing all this stuff for the undocumented immigrants, but they're doing nothing for us who came here and waited in line. Then I tell them that, hey, how they treat undocumented immigrants is an indicator of how they treat immigrants in general or whether they really want us here deep down. Like monitoring that situation is super important because it indicates how it treats immigrants, not just undocumented ones. Immigrants, period. Thank you so much to all three of our guests for taking the time out to share their very personal stories with us. We're really grateful to be able to discuss these topics and to share them with our audience. So how do you guys feel after listening to these three stories? So I honestly felt very sad and very concerned for the state of our country because I feel like we're not really being inclusive of immigrants. It's like we're only using them for our benefit and not really catering to their needs, catering to their emotions, catering to their struggles. And it's very, you know, nerve wracking for me. Yeah, for me, it was very like educational to hear from people who are actually going through the different struggles. Like I learned so much from these three interviews that we had. And it's, you know, inspiring me to research more and look up what's going on, like in my local communities, and see how I can help. Like I was really inspired by all the stories. Yeah, I think for me, I was like, I was getting so fired up with just listening to like, their struggles and frustrations. And a part of me just kind of forgot that like, wait a minute, like, hey, like, I come from a family of immigrants, too. I think it's easy to forget you know, where we come from and the struggles we faced. I think I want to move forward with more of an open mind and just keep this in my thoughts. And like you said, Priya and Deepthi, see what we can do in the future and like politically how we can get more involved and make sure that these people's voices are heard. So another narrative that we hear a lot, even among our Desi community, is the argument of, like, we came here legally, so why can't, you know, other immigrants do the same thing? Like, I don't understand why illegal immigrants have come to the United States. And what do you guys think about that? Like, I feel like, you know, it's almost like previous generations who've been here for a long time kind of forgot about the struggles that they faced when they came here. And, you know, they're sort of like, oh, we already have our place and there's not enough room for new people, which doesn't really make sense to me. I actually hear this a lot from the Daisy community that surrounds me. They're like, oh, our kids are having so much trouble getting jobs. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if all these people from India would just stop coming. I've heard that from the older generation, which is really sad because it's not actually true. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as bad as it sounds, I can see that sentiment resonating from time to time within 
you know, our community, outside our community. Mm -hmm. You actually mentioned a great point, Priya. Like, I think we kind of forgot, like, what the struggles were like, too. It's not just that we forgot, right? It's just, like, we had different struggles, actually. Like, maybe, like, I think because each of our families, we had different struggles even within such a time frame. Now it's probably way more different. We don't realize how different those struggles are. So I think it's important to hear stories like the ones we've presented here today. I was also thinking about how I think all of our families came here as skilled workers. They, you know, either were engineers or some kind of STEM field because that's what was needed at the time. And those were the quotas they were trying to fill. And even now, like I had a whole discussion about this with my parents yesterday. Like, oh, you should, you know, always go into a STEM field because your chances are higher and you're going to be in like that pool. And so it's unfortunate in a way that like there's that pressure you have to be skilled if you want to come here and otherwise like value isn't placed basically on other people but with this pandemic we've really found out that essential workers are really very essential like not all of us are gonna like maintain facilities not all of us are going to work at grocery Mm -hmm. stores and Mm -hmm. they're all very important to us even surviving like we all need food definitely (laughs) 100% yeah Yeah, I mean honestly sometimes I think about that I'm like is my job even essential like what am I doing to actually help people right now you know like I'm just sitting in front of the computer don't mind me (laughs) for sure it's definitely changed my perspective a lot in the past couple months yeah this pandemic For sure. (laughs) I think this brings up a great point. The U.S. really only wanting us as in, you know, they see Asian immigrants when we're needed because we've kind of benefited out of systems that were in place because of a lack of skilled workers available. Mm -hmm. I remember reading about the H-1B. It was mostly because they needed more engineers at the time. And I think in the 70s, there was a shortage of doctors. And I have second or third cousins who's families immigrated because their parents were doctors. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's only when the U.S. needed us for their own needs that Mm -hmm. we're able to come. So I think this is also why we need to support and amplify civil rights activists and activist movements because they're the ones who actually push for non-white immigrants. We covered during our BLM episode about how the civil rights movement allowed for a lot of legal immigration of South Asians because it removed exclusionary immigration policies that favored Mm -hmm. European countries, aka white people, and we basically owe it to Black Americans for the status we've achieved here. So the funny thing is a lot of H-1B skilled workers basically come from Asian countries, India, China, Pakistan. So it's basically actually we're mentioning mostly Desi countries. It's really sad that Trump is basically playing into this we don't want Asian people here narrative because Mm -hmm. he's basically like not allowing those visas to be created anymore. Do you guys think there's anything kind of racist about how the H-1Bs are sort of being excluded? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we already know Trump has it against Asian countries, especially with coronavirus. So this isn't very surprising to me, honestly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's interesting because I remember when he was running for president, there were some funny memes and videos and he was like, I love the Hindus. And 
this whole episode has shown us why we need to vote, really vote for legislation that does push for immigration. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, basically, I think Deepthi, you said something that kind of resonated here by saying, like, whenever America needs people, they will bring them in. And when they don't need people, they'll push them out. (laughs) And that's, to me, doesn't sound cool. You know, we feel like America was built on immigrants, right? This whole Mm -hmm. nation is like a diverse melting pot of nationalities. And it was built on this diversity. So it doesn't seem fair to impose these restrictions now. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, obviously, we can't open the gates to anyone, everyone. I'm like, I'm sure there are some like logistics to that repercussions to that. But when it comes down to like the fundamentals ethics of this, like we've been discussing in this podcast, mm-hmm. I think we're crossing a line. And I think there's a problem there. So yeah. Do you guys have anything to say with that? Add to it. Yeah, I mean, it's just wrong. (laughs) You know, like just that's all I have to say, really. Like it just made me so angry to read all these different Mm -hmm. rules and restrictions that are being placed. And I'm really happy that, you know, the international student restriction has been lifted because that was just ridiculous. And, you know, it really shows that the power of our voices, because so many people spoke up about that. There were so many students kind of banding together to create classes so that international students could actually say that they were going in person. And like, that gave me hope, you know, that we can actually make a difference. So I think Mm -hmm. it's super important to keep Mm -hmm. up with all these topics and continue these conversations. We do want to collect more stories. So if this episode inspired you, if you want to talk about your own immigration story, we do want to have a more in-depth discussion on immigration stories in future episodes. And if you'd like to submit your immigration story, please email us at DaisyAmericanLife at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at DaisyAmericanPod. And you can also follow our Facebook page. Additionally, we're sharing some resources about H-1Bs, the green card backlog, and more in our episode description. Please feel free to check them out. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.